the, the gist of it is again this mindset where we're like, I'm going to do this, and I can do this. I will do this. The future will be okay. I'll get through this. That really helps. And then we get down in there and we decide what we need to do, what are we able to do, and whether it worked or not. Do we need to correct and try something else? Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose. And I'm very pleased today to be joined by Professor of Clinical Psychology. Joining us from Manhattan is Professor George Bonanno. Welcome, George. Uh, thank you, Nathan. Nice to be here. Nice to talk with you. Absolutely. Thank you. So today we're here to talk about um, your decade. You've done three decades or so of research into um, trauma and resilience, and you recently re- released a a brilliant book called The End of Trauma, which has um, maybe some counterintuitive or ideas around um, how resilient we actually are. So I wanted to talk about um, trauma and the, the flip side, resilience. So um, before we jump in, perhaps give us, can you describe how you ended up looking at um, trauma and, and its uh, flip side, as I said, resilience? Sure. Um, well, I began my career, I'm a trained clinical psychologist, and I did my graduate training and and I did a lot of experimental work, experimental studies, which I enjoy experimental work. And then there's a long story. I won't go into the details. I I was offered a position in San Francisco and I took this position, a postdoctoral position at at the medical school there in San Francisco, a great medical school, UCSF. And um, it was to kind of head up a study of bereavement and um, at the time, I didn't know much about bereavement, which was in a way fortuitous because when I began to learn about it, my, peria- my curiosity was really piqued. It, it's a, it's an, it was a field at the time that was kind of marginalized. And I thought the literature, this is in the very early 1990s, the literature was, um, seemed extremely out of date to me. So we just you know, had a chance to set up these kind of novel studies recruit lots of people, follow them over time. And the literature at that time was really focused on the clinical outcomes only. You know, it was the the, PT, the trauma literature was focused on PTSD. The bereavement literature was focused on prolonged and complicated grief reactions. And the, much of the research was done on those subpopulations. So I designed a study with my colleagues to, to sort of recruit anybody who'd been through one of those events. And we tracked people over time. And right away we saw lots of resilience. Right. And but now we were we were actually collecting data and mapping different patterns. And at first we didn't even call it resilience because the word wasn't used in this context yet. It wasn't used for highly aversive events. It was used more broadly. But then we 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 so we we published a paper, we published another paper, and we kept finding it. And then I expanded <clears throat> to study trauma. Um, I thought this must be the same with trauma, and we began to find the same thing with trauma. So we began to, uh, for over the years, we, we kept identifying these same different outcome patterns. We saw, you know, of course, we saw people who were struggling, but then we saw lots of people, and it turned out the majority of people were showing a trajectory of relatively stable health 
after the event. You know, everybody suffers a little bit. Mm. You know, these are disturbing events. And everybody's disoriented, disequilibrated, you know, has some distress and center for sometimes up to a couple of weeks or longer. But then most people, it, we found, continue to show a healthy trajectory. They are able to function. And that's what we began to call resilience, a resilient outcome. Yeah, interesting. And in the early parts of your book, you discuss briefly that the history or, or almost the lack of um, trauma throughout the ages. And uh, um, obviously, there's been trauma through the ages, um, particularly I sense, um, you know, with infant mortality and and wars and battles over the years and infections. So what's your take on, on it only really became known or recognised, understandably, after uh, around World War One. Yeah, so what's the sort of history of um, throughout the ages of, of trauma and, and resilience? Well, it's a, that's a very interesting question. I don't have a, a yet a great answer for that. Um, and I'm not a historian, but I, I do my, I'm curious about history and I read a lot of history. And it, what I described in the book was that I simply, there, there simply wasn't any, any mention of what we would consider trauma of, you know, there are certainly plenty of descriptions of horrific events, but there weren't any, there wasn't any mention of lasting psychological consequences of those events. There was, um, lots of talk about grief you know you go back to the iliad even and you you know homer's iliad and you find lots of descriptions of profound weeping soldiers and families you know but you don't hear soldiers in the iliad or any of these other classic pieces of literature talking about how they had nightmares and they couldn't sleep because of you know the what they'd seen and that's really the same throughout history up until really the first mention was in the 17th century in a diary of a famous diary of a guy named Samuel Pepys. And Samuel Pepys recorded everything he basically is. He's famous. He was an aristocrat. He did some things in his life, but he's famous for keeping this diary um, for about 10 years. And he, it was pretty clear he didn't really intend it to be read. He wrote in a kind of a quasi code. And he kept, when he when he passed on, it was in with his books, which were donated to the University of Cambridge. And it was a good hundred years after that, not until the 18th century, that somebody went through the books and they discovered the diaries. And ever since then, those diaries have been kind of famous, you know, you know, in a circle of people who's interested in diaries for talking about so many things that that um, we have very little record of. And Pepys had traumatic experiences. He went through the fire of London and was deeply disturbed by it. And he had nightmares. And in the diary, he's completely confused by these mm. nightmares. Why am I still unable to sleep? And that what's interesting about that, and he was surprised he was having nightmares also. What's interesting about that is he really just couldn't understand why he was having those reactions. It was not a kind of thing people talked about. And I don't know why that is. That's a great question. You know, but it wasn't until then, almost the end of the 19th century, that somebody actually named it. Um, and then into the 20th century, there was a, we may get a little bit of inkling as to why there was so much resistance because of the military. And I don't mean to blame the military about this, but it's um, the military was always very ambivalent about a trauma diagnosis, a trauma naming trauma. You know, you have the famous example of, of cowardice, of people accused of cowardice mm. in world war one 
And there was a famous phrase, shot at dawn in England to describe soldiers who, who refused to go into battle, you know, a second or third time during World War I. And they were shot at dawn for cowardice. And it was not till only a few years ago that all those soldiers or that the record of those soldiers was, was cleared and they were given honorary, um, you know, whatever it would be, honorary um, discharge. So there was always an ambivalence about it. And for, for, I think, obvious reasons, it's very hard to fight wars if trauma is another possibility. You can be killed, you can be harmed, you can be maimed, you can be left to die on the battlefield. And on top of mm-hmm. it, you can be traumatized. So, you know, that was kind of left. It was, I think, it was more of an impetus to leave that out of the picture. That's my best guess. I mean, that there is some truth in that. Yeah. And it wasn't finally till 1980 when, uh, in the United States, when so many soldiers were coming home from the Vietnam War, deeply traumatized. And it was an unpopular war, very unpopular war, lots of protests. And I think the soldiers returning were not treated so well. Mm. That's, a, that's pretty well established. They were treated very, very poorly when they shouldn't have been. They had to go to war. They were drafted. And um, that led to a lot of psychological problems. And eventually, finally, the decision to formulate a PTSD diagnosis. Right. We might get into the diagnosis in a moment. First, I want to look at those, um, I suppose, the, the split of the trajectory. So you've published some um, really important work where you've looked at um, a large number of people and also um, the 9-11 incident as well. You were uh, thereabouts around that time and did some really important work there. But what really strikes me is that um, and from other bits of psychology, which I'm certainly not an expert, but what strikes me is we seem to have, as you said, this sort of um, almost set point of mood and happiness and, and well-being. And um, you can have uh, perturbations up and down, like win the lottery, but you tend to be just as happy, you know, a few years later, or you become paraplegic. And again, you you're, you're become back to this sort of happiness set point over time. Um, and it seems the case that it's more often not that after a, a potentially traumatic event that we do... Um, get back to our baseline. So can you describe um, the, the trajectories and maybe touch upon some of those biggest studies you've conducted? Yeah, sure. Yeah, happy to. Well, first of all, let me. Um, the, what you referred with the set point was something called the hedonic treadmill. And there's evidence, you know, showing that people, when they do something great, they something wonderful happens to them, their happiness only lasts so long, and same thing with something bad. Those studies are based on, an, oh, those are averages, right? So mm. on average, we see that. But what my work has been about, really, for all these years is to try to, to take that apart and to dig in there and find the different responses, the heterogeneity. So we began doing this with really by hand initially. Wow. And then we, oh, yeah, I mean, it was it was a little bit crude. And, you know, um, we literally could, you could see it in the data. So we began to parse people into these different patterns. But, you know, then eventually um, really wonderful computational te- techniques have emerged. So now we do it, we use fairly complex statistical modeling now. But we find these different patterns. I mentioned the resilience trajectory. And I think... It's not necessarily that people were, you know, fantastically happy mm. before and after, but they're just living their lives more or less in the normal range. You know, they're functioning, they're healthy by most standards, and then they go through a really aversive event, and within a, a relatively short time, days, a couple of weeks maybe, they're back, live, they're back at that level of functioning again. 
that's the resilience trajectory. And that we see on average around two thirds of two thirds of the studies, we see that sometimes much more, sometimes a little bit less. So it's the majority always. And then we of course see a small subset of people who develop, who, who were doing relatively well, but then develop high levels of symptoms and distress, say PTSD symptoms or whatever we're measuring, depression, and they don't return to baseline for years. That they, they continue to suffer for years. And that's essentially what you could map onto that PTSD or you know, complicated grief or one of those one of those diagnostic measures. It's not a diagnosis, it's we're just simply mapping a pattern that we see in the data. Then we see another group of people who um, who show elevated symptoms and distress after the event. They don't. Re they they struggle for a number of months, sometimes as many as six months, and then they gradually begin to return to baseline within a year or two after the event. We call that the recovery pattern. Ah, right. These and the, both these patterns are you know sometimes it varies by by what happened and the you know who the sample is, but you know they're they're ten percent, sometimes twenty percent will show the recovery pattern. And then we see a few other patterns from time to time, but those are the big patterns that we see. You know, those are the most common patterns yeah. we see. And just to want to underscore the the amount of data you've collected. So, you looked at um, veterans, the tens and hundreds of thousands and uh, of um, subjects. <coughs> we did. We have done work with veteran studies. Fantastic data sets that I didn't collect. Actually, they're, they're studies. Um, the veteran studies. You know, were collected uh, by funds from the Department of Defense in the U.S. Um, you and you know many investigators involved. I came in. I came in to be involved in these studies when it was time to do some of the to play around with it. Okay. Excuse me. I was coughing a bit there. <laughs> and so we had the the study itself has has over a hundred thousand wow. soldiers are followed from before they deployed to then during and after the deployment for a number of years afterwards. So it's an amazing data set and it's it's really wonderfully collected. So I, I got involved because I saw the data and I thought, well, this would be great to do this kind of modeling I do. So I contacted investigators and we collaborated. And so in that study, we saw very high levels of resilience because soldiers are trained for what they do. Even though they go through pretty horrific things, they're trained and that makes a big difference because they know what they're going to expect. Uh. And we, we also, you know, we use national data sets. We use um, small data sets. I collect, we, I collect my own data sets, sometimes a couple hundred people, but sometimes we get, a, we sometimes get a hold of other data sets. I collaborate with lots of people now and the, the size varies, but right. together right. we've, you know, yeah. we've, you know, tens of thousands of, of subjects, but you know, they're all, they vary yeah. by the, individual study so what about then with um untrained people um as i mentioned you did some work after 9 11 where um obviously very traumatic you were in york at the time and it was also predicted that there's going to be this massive um high levels of ptsd following 9 11 and you've dubbed it the the trauma blind spot can you can describe what happens with a i suppose an untrained civilian when they uh yeah. expose to trauma sure yeah, I actually called it the resilience blind spot oh, sorry. because yeah. we, yeah, we 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 tend not to expect resilience because we get caught up in just how horrific something is, especially for a large scale 
event like 9-11 and there's a little bit of a I don't want to use the word hysteria, but there's a kind of a, of a, of a contagion that, that happens initially where we expect this is going to be a massive mental health crisis. And it rarely is. We did the same thing with COVID. At least in this country, we did the same thing. We're expecting unprecedented mental health needs that, that really didn't happen. You know, certainly people are, some, some people, there's always a subset that's distressed, but we do, we do see a lot of resilience as well. Now, um, with our 9-11 studies, um, we saw we, we typically see the same patterns across even the worst events. There's some variability, um, but we see a lot of resilience, the majority resilient again after 9-11. Now, we did, we did some work where we had people with the highest levels of exposure. This is people who were in the towers themselves and got out. So all of those people had to get out of those towers, usually walking down the stairways. You know, the stairways were filled with gasoline and smoke and cut glass and enormous numbers of people trying to wind down. So in some cases, you know, 50, 60, 90 floors, you know, and it was stressful and confusing. And the people that got to the bottom of those two buildings into the lobby, enormous lobby filled with shops and a transit hub, and everything was destroyed and it was completely confusing to them because they didn't know exactly what was happening. Then they get out in the street and it's a beautiful day, but not long after many of those people got out of the street, the buildings collapsed mm. and many people had to run for their lives. So this is a pretty high magnitude compound like trauma event, I would call it. But I, I call events potentially traumatic, but this is about as potentially traumatic as they come. And we still, again, saw large levels of resilience. We saw also many people suffering a lot, right? But when we do the, the proper analysis, we track people over time, we again see, you know, the majority are resilient, even for this type of event. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned this potentially traumatic event. This is something you've um, tried to bring into the vernacular. Can you describe that versus trauma? Yeah. Um, and I, I have, I've, I, so I, events are not traumatic. We have this idea that they're traumatic. And I've been fairly successful, at least at getting within within the, 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 the sort of science-oriented areas of, of trauma research, that term accepted. We call we use the word, the acronym PTE to, to describe a potentially traumatic event. But it's, it's a really important distinction. It may seem like a subtle, you know, linguistic, lexical distinction, but it's really important because I think right now, there is an obsessive interest in trauma. Mm. And I think it's, I don't think it's a healthy thing. You know, I think people are willing to speak, to feel like they've been traumatized for just about anything. And it does two things. It, it creates a kind of a anxiety about these events. At the same time, I think it minimizes people who've been gone through a, a genuinely highly traumatic event, right? So it's, it's, it's sort of like m messing things up at both ends. And I, there are a lot of, um, I think, myths, a lot of very poorly understood ideas out there that have gained great currency, cultural currency. One of those ideas is the, is the notion of a hidden trauma, mm. that people are carrying around hidden traumas with them. And I think that partly comes, again, from the word trauma. You know, there are a lot of different events that we would call trauma. That's why I use the phrase potentially, potential trauma, you know. Um, uh, an automobile accident, a um, you know a hurricane disaster, terrorist attack, a 
a, a life-threatening medical emergency, emergency, you know, um, uh, an assault, a, sex, a case of sexual abuse. All of these things that are potentially traumatic, not to minimize them, just because they're not traumatic for everybody, because people are resilient. So when, when we remember one of those events in our past, and we often forget them, honestly, yeah. because because they're, if they weren't traumatic, and what we know is that most people are resilient to even the worst events, therefore most people who have gone through something like that in their past were likely resilient. And sometimes we forget those events because we're not thinking about them that much. Then we're reminded of one of those events, either by a therapist or by you know, just simply the way memory works, you know, mm. we're, we're, we're keyed by something and we suddenly think, I have a traumatic event in my past. Oh my God, I must have a hidden trauma. And that leads to a whole, I think, un unnecessary chain of thinking, you know, where then I'm now, whatever I'm struggling with is because I have this hidden trauma. And that I think is wrongheaded because both it attributes it to the past when it probably didn't, not necessarily was the cause, and also it minimizes what we can do in the present to, to be healthier people. If it's all because of a hidden trauma, there's not much we can do about that, you know. And so I think that this is this is really a dangerous line of thinking that that sort of uh, you know spread out into the general public. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was thinking about it, and um, I feel sometimes uh, our physiology and even psychology maybe. It, um, a response is sometimes uh, pathologized and uh, it's probably a poor analogy, but I'm thinking about like um, people who are gluten intolerant where, um, you know, I think the research now is saying it's probably not gluten with many people. It's maybe something else or it could be this like nocebo effect. And to your point, like, can this harm the people who are truly like celiac or are gluten intolerant where, I don't know, now that um, people are a little bit relaxed with serving meals that may contain gluten, if you know what I mean. So um, with this poor analogy, what's the the, the, the flip side? You said like it, it could, um, could it trivialize? Or there are other people who do obviously suffer um, trauma and PTSD. Can it sort of dilute their effects or oh, well, well-being? I mean, in terms of trauma? Yeah, or yeah t t in terms of trauma like... Oh, I think so, yeah. I mean, because there, there are definitely... Even the worst, you know, I mentioned, I've said repeatedly that even the worst events, we see lots of resilience. But by the same token, we almost always see a number of people who are seriously, um, you know, disturbed by that event and suffer lasting harm. And I think those people genuinely need, genuinely need help. And we have good tools for treating people with, with ongoing PTSD. You know, it's not the tools are not perfect, but we have a number of treatments that are known to, to be effective with chronic PTSD. And so I think if we if we just kind of blur the whole picture where everybody's talking about being traumatized, then the people who generally were traumatized and generally struggle to get over their trauma are kind of lost in the crowd. And that's really unfair to those people yeah. because it makes it probably makes it harder for them to get the treatment they need yeah. or the help they yeah. need. So with a person, say, with mental health issues, um, that that um, they, they do have, if they don't have the trauma, um, the trauma, if there's no hidden trauma, um, uh, sorry, flip side, if they've got some sort of mental health issues, it's um, if there's no hidden trauma, then 
there's no point trying to look for it. We probably should be more interested in the recovery side and how do we become resilient rather than trying to dredge through the past to try and um, identify mm-hmm. this event. So um, on the flip side, if someone has trauma, do we need to know about it or we just need to know that they're unwell and, and we need to move forward? If you understand what I'm saying, like, is it necessary yeah, to know well, the trauma? Well, there are a couple of things. People who have been genuinely traumatized in the past do not forget it. Yeah. Right. Okay. They, they know it's happened and they know that it, it's caused them harm. So they can tell a therapist. They can seek a therapist. Now, they may be unwilling to do so. And that's true in some cases. But they, they do not forget that they've been traumatized. And they did not. They do not forget that they suffered for a long period of time, and maybe continuously. So in that case, it's good to to, to remind people to get to you know this that there is help. There are there are treatments for for chronic PTSD. And again, by you know the, the the idea that everybody's traumatized, it makes it harder to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but so you know, I think that that's it's really important again that you know. So the people who've generally been traumatized, they do you know they. They, they, they know it and they, they, there's help available if they need it. Yep. And I think for other people, if they're struggling with problems and, um, you know, they're, the, the label is of a hidden trauma, they're, you know, they're traumatized in the past when they maybe weren't, that doesn't help at all. Yeah. That was it could, because it targets the wrong issue, probably. Yeah. It doesn't help them unpack what's going on in their life at the present. Exactly. Now for a short break to share a clinical gem. Sophie presented to her naturopath with irritable bowel syndrome, presenting as slightly urgent loose stools, as well as heartburn, which could last up to 12 hours and have her in tears. Her practitioner prescribed a combination which included Coptis, Boswellia, Andrographis and Zincarnacine. After 10 days, Sophie reported her bowel motions had improved, and at three weeks they had normalised. Furthermore, her heartburn eased significantly over the course of a few weeks, and at three weeks, she was no longer symptomatic. A wonderful result for Sophie. To learn more about the combination of Coptis, Boswellia, Andrographis and Zinc Carnosine, visit metagenicsinstitute.com.au. That's our clinical gem for the day. Now, back to the podcast. Can you describe like what happens... Um, I know you're into psych- you're obviously psychology, but you, in your book you mention a fair bit of physiology with like the, the HPA access and certain parts of the brain. Can you, yes, yes, yes. can you sort of describe, is there a model of what happens when we have a potentially traumatic event and how the, the body and brain processes it and then moves into a resilient sort of um, phenotype? Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have a very good stress response capacity. We're born with the capacity, you know, it develops over time. We're very slow developing creatures. As, as human beings, we have a lot of, we have a big cortical neurons, we have a lot of brain, and so it takes us a long time to fully mature compared to many other creatures. But the system we have for stress responding is phylogenetically preserved. That, in other words, it, we see it in animals, we see it in the other creatures. It's a little different in humans because we have a lot of top-down regulation of because we have these these uh, you know cortical cortical neuron rich brains but basically when we first are confronted with something we have a very rapid crude response system we respond often without even knowing it 
and that's um, it's a crude system. So we make mistakes sometimes. You know, we we react to things that are not dangerous at all. We just weren't sure. There's a default, like kind of err on the side of reaction. You know, we're very we have a capacity to detect threat. Mm. We're very good at that. That's our kind of a short term response. I I think that's kind of like screaming or yelling, you know, uh, calling for help. That's it. What that response is kind of like. Then we have a longer, slower response that is um, that it involves the HPA axis. That's the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal glands. That's what HPA stands for. And there is a, a secretion. It's all hormonal, so it involves secretions and the the um, the, the, the um, creation of, of or you know manufacturing of, of new hormones to react. And it takes a while for all that to happen. It takes about twenty minutes. For that to fully happen and, and and flood our brain, but when that happens, we our brain really kicks into high gear, and our brain tells our you know helps really ramps up what our body can do, and that only happens when we're seriously threatened for a while, right? So if there's immediate threat and it's no longer present, you know, in a few minutes, that doesn't happen. But if the threat continues to be present for, you know, a number of minutes, we get this much larger reaction. And that's a very effective reaction. And it, as I said, it really puts us into high gear. Um, the hormone, the cortisol, the, the corticosteroids, they, 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 they enter our brain and you know, they, they, they circulate until they get to our brain and really ramp things up. So that's really what, what and for, for many things, that's quite adaptive and, and, and suffice, right? That mm. gets us through mm. them, you know. But, you know, potentially traumatic events often linger in our minds and they cause us to you know to feel stress to feel uneasy for for a number of days sometimes and so we may continue to have some of that reaction over the course of a few days sometimes longer it takes a while to run its course and you know most people this is i think another poorly understood fact most people who are exposed to potential trauma become quite distressed and they have for a number of days uh, you know, um, they have, uh, they think about it when they don't want to, mm. unbidden mm. thoughts, or they're not pleasant thoughts. It's not pleasant to think about a potential traumatic event, but we do think about it when we don't want to. We have sometimes have nightmares about it. We feel a little on edge. And all these, these reactions are from an evolutionary perspective, enormously adaptive. We think about something when we don't want to, because in a sense, we have to figure it out what happened. We can learn from this. And there is a lot of memory-based processing that goes on. We need to learn from these really dangerous events. Was there something we could do to prevent it? Should we avoid this area? Um, you know, what exactly happened and what did we do? It's just important to know. And the, the heightened arousal means that we're also uh, on edge in case something continue might still happen. You know, and we didn't know in our past, you know, there were lots of dangerous things and there still are things that can happen after an event. So, you know, all those reactions are, are quite adaptive, I think. And I think people misinterpret those as maybe that means they're traumatized. And I've had friends and other people I know ask me that. Am I, do I have PTSD because I've had these reactions? And the answer is no. You don't have PTSD. You could have PTSD, but that takes a while mm. to happen. And usually at least one, one, the diagnosis isn't even possible for a month because it, we, our body normally, our mind-body system will normally kind of get through all this, 
right? So it's, it is an adaptive distress. Distress is unpleasant, but it is what we have, how we react. So that's the kind of the, the normative reaction we see. Yeah, right. And some, yeah. sometimes it goes awry. Things don't work quite well. And there's a lot of different reasons why that would be. And longer term reactions um, happen. And then that begins to fester. And, you know, when we're not happy, when we're upset, we're distressed for, you know, a month or so, other things begin to fall apart a little bit. And that's when we get in the realm of PTSD. Yeah, okay. Again, it was probably a poor analogy, but I almost see it like you get an infection. You, you, your body's trying to fight it off and you get all these symptoms. It's horrible. It's not pleasant, but it's sort of necessary to try and to get through back to that sort of that baseline. I think it's a, it's a decent analogy. It's, it's not quite right <laughs> because it, the suffering may not be quite so extreme. But, yeah, that's your, 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 your system is trying to work it out and get through it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So moving on to probably an area we've explored more around um, psychological factors that may determine those who are resilient versus those who develop um, trauma. Um, after reading and hearing about this section, it made me think you'll probably never have a TED talk on this because there's no simple, single, overarching you know, answer. There's a whole lot of little things. You've dubbed it the um, resilience paradox. Can you describe um, what you found with your research looking at, you know, is there the, the, the magic thing that can make us resilient? Um, yes. And, and I think there is an answer to that, which is, if I can make a, a strange adjective, Ted talkable. But um, uh, yeah, the resilience paradox, it's so there's a, there's an idea and I call this the myth of the resilient type, that there's an idea that resilient people have these key characteristics, three or five or seven. There are always three or five or seven, which is already an, an alarm, sets off an alarm in me, these like magic numbers. But there are these handful of things that are assumed to make people resilient. And they're usually their favorite things. They're all pretty healthy things like social support or problem solving or um, a certain personality variable or mindfulness. And these are the magic ingredients. Well, it turns out when we when we identify people showing this resilience trajectory and the other trajectories, and then we look at the correlates of those trajectories, we can identify up to 50 different factors. So we keep identifying different factors. And recently we've done machine learning studies and other studies where we identify even more factors that, that, that correlate with that outcome. All of those factors have what we call, statistically we call small effect sizes. They're basically, they only explain a tiny little portion of the variance. They only explain a tiny little portion of who will be resilient and who not. And it, because of that, it's very hard to actually predict who will be resilient because we're only capturing a little bit of it with unless we measure, you know, we have to measure 50 or 60 things to get in the ballpark, which we've done. But, you know, this means measuring things we can't even see, like taking blood and measuring immune response and stress levels, you know. And, and um, so, if, you know, it, it becomes a kind of a real conundrum that I've thought about this for years. How do we solve this conundrum? I call this the resilience paradox. We can identify things that are correlated with resilience, but we still can't predict very well. Who will be resilient? And um, with that, I, I love this concept you've, you've mentioned a few times around sort of coping ugly. Like, um, there's just 
you just got to find a, a way in a sense. And, and there's also trade-offs, like, as you mentioned, that the effect size are small and sometimes um, what could be helpful for one may hinder another person's, um, you know, trajectory. So can you describe this idea of sort of coping ugly and, and the trade-offs? Yeah, sure. So the, the, the gist of it, what I, I eventually got into something I call flexibility, which is really the fact it, it capitalized on the fact that there is there is nothing really that always works. There's nothing that's mm. always effective. We see this all throughout nature. You know, every adaptation, everything that animals evolve to do doesn't they don't always work. There are always costs and, and benefits to everything. There are trade-offs. So when we take complex situations like a potential trauma, which are incredibly varied, you know, coping with a hurricane is different than coping with abuse, which is different than coping with a terrorist attack, which is different than coping with a heart attack, which is different than coping with an automobile accident. You know, all of these things present us as very different challenges. So what, what the research has been pointing to is that what works in one situation even if it's our favorite coping behavior, may not work in another situation and at another point in time. And so, you know, because these events sometimes last for several days or longer, what works at the beginning may not work two days later, right? So we have to constantly adapt. And that led me early on to develop this concept that I call coping ugly, which I love the name. I mean, it, 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 when I published it first in an academic journal, I called it pragmatic coping, which mm-hmm. is more accurate in a sense, but it's not as um, appealing in a way. Um, the coping ugly, it comes from when I was um, growing up in the city of Chicago. There was a baseball team, the Chicago White Sox. And I'm a big baseball fan. And they had a, they had a, a team that shouldn't have won games. Um, and they were very sloppy. They made a lot of mistakes, a lot of errors, but they won games anyway. And, the, and one of the sports writers dubbed that winning ugly. And I decided that that was a good, good name for coping ugly was a good name for sometimes when we're in a situation and we just have to get through it. It doesn't have to be mm. pretty. It doesn't have to be the healthiest thing. But if it gets us through the event, that's fine. Right. And so people will sometimes cope using behaviors or strategies or, or, or you know, um, activities that we wouldn't normally consider healthy, that they wouldn't even normally consider healthy or even think about doing, but it's just what they need to do at that moment. And it can range from all kinds of things, like using a behavior they never thought about or using something that people would frown on. It's not, it's not healthy. But if it gets us through the, the, the situation, it, it's fine, as long as nobody's being harmed seriously. you know. And most things, even the unhealthy things, are not harmful you know, just for a short while. Yeah. Yeah. I always think of John Lennon's song. I think it was a, um, a song with, t- with the title, Whatever Gets You Through the Night. You know, and that really captures yeah. it. Whatever's going to work now, is okay. it's basically okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so I want to move on to the framework you've developed. And I applaud you for this because it sounds like there's so many moving parts and it's so fuzzy, but you've, you've sort of brought it together to, as I understand, that there's two components to um, building resilience. There's the... The flexibility mindset and then the um, flexibility sequence. And I was just thinking this morning, it's sort of almost like where there's a will, there's a way. Like first you've got to develop the will and then you've got to work out the way. So can you do, yes. describe <laughs> describe these two components? Yeah, well, so the, the flexibility sequences are the nuts and bolts of it. That's like how we actually figure out what's the best coping behavior strategy or action at the, in a given event. But that's not easy 
and we don't it requires a little bit of thought right it requires us to kind of embrace the event and that's not easy because we don't want to think about these events they're unpleasant you know we want them out of our minds right their nightmares are, are not you know nightmares in a way make them you know enter our consciousness but we don't want to be thinking about these events so we need a little bit of motivation we need a kind of a of an understanding that it'll be okay if we just kind of get down and do it, and that's where the flexibility mindset comes in. The flexibility mindset is a kind of a a way of thinking, a conviction that that I'll get through this eventually, you know. And in the book, I break down in the in the end of trauma, I break down you know the little pieces of it, the, the individual components are kind of optimism, confidence in your coping abilities focus on the challenge rather than the threat, you know, all those things that I don't even think they're necessary, really. I mean, they work pretty well, and the research shows they work pretty well. But the conviction is what's important. You know, I did an interview with a guy who, um, Joe DeSena, who who runs a race called the Spartan Race. And the Spartan Race is um, is a kind of an obstacle course race that, that, that seems like, you know, impossible. You know, people... They, they strip down to, to basic clothing, sometimes shirtless, or, you know, if, if, there, if a woman is involved in a race, you know, minimal amount of clothing that's, that's okay for a woman to wear. And they, um, they might, you know, climb up a rope ladder, then get down on the other side and have to dive into a nice cold pond to come on the other side. And they have to run up a, a long hill that's covered in mud and haul a big weight up that hill and then do something else and do something else and then run a little bit. It's, it's a long race. And people end up helping each other as they go along. And, and the, many people do this and they get finished with it. And Joe told me that when they get to the end, they say things like, my God, I can't believe I did that. I did that. I'm, mm-hmm. I did this, this Spartan race and I can do things I didn't know I could do. And that kind of experiences, we have these experiences in our lives, whether it's, you know, achieving something in education or doing something on a job or or, 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 you know, coming, stepping up to the plate to help other people or raising our family, any of these things we weren't sure we could do that gives us this sense of I can do things. I, I have the ability and I'll just get in there and do it. That's what we need. We really need that. And, you know, there are ways I'm working on ways we can encourage that. But I think most people actually our research shows already have that kind of confidence, whether they know it or not. But it's important. Then we get into the flexibility sequence, the, the nuts and bolts part, where we actually do work it out. And that has, you know, some basic components. I mean, first thing we need to do is actually figure out what's happening to us. You know, what do I actually need to do here? And that requires, as I said, thinking about the event a little bit. And sometimes we, you know, we can pay attention to our bodies, you know, what, what's our bodies telling us we need or what's the problem exactly? You know, is it that this thing happened and now I have to fix something? Is it that this thing happened and now I need to, you know, I'm, I'm really anxious and I can't sleep. I need to, like, calm down and deal with that. Or I need to, sometimes we can break it down into smaller pieces. I first need to get a good night's sleep. How can I do that? And that might come into where I have coping ugly or, you know, some other thing. And, you know, during the pandemic, people watched a lot of bad movies. Mm-hmm. A lot of, you know, binge watched a lot of bad shows, right? But that was what we needed to do, you know? And so that's the first part. And then we, we figure out what's happening. And then we, we, we get to the second part, which I call uh, repertoire, where we figure out what is it? Okay, I need to do something here. What am I able to do? And that depends on our own personal repertoire. And of course, some people have really large repertoires and some people have smaller repertoires, but 
Um, we, so we're, we're good at some things and we, people tend to know that our research has shown mm -hmm. people know that. And so we know what we're good at. We can try some of those things. If it seems right, if it doesn't seem right, we can try some other things, maybe things we've kind of done before, but we're not sure about, but we can try things. And, and then finally, the third part, a very important part we call feedback, but we, we pay attention to what's happened then. And we, you know, we monitor, okay, I tried this thing. Now what happened? Is it working? And often it's not. And most, you know, I think there's another myth that people are, some people, this resilient, the, the mythical resilient person does something and it works. But in real life, actually, it turns out even the, the healthiest person doesn't work it out right away the first time. We try something, then we try something again until we start to get it to see what happens. And when we're dealing with an event for a while, you know, we, there's a kind of a trial and error period that we gradually learn, okay, this is what works in this situation. So, you know, then this cycles through many times. So, I mean, the, the, nut, the, the gist of it is, again, this mindset where we're like, I'm going to do this, and I can do this. I will do this. The future will be okay. I'll get through this. That really helps. And then we get down in there and we decide what we need to do, what are we able to do, and whether it worked or not. Do we need to correct and try something else? Yeah. And you've got some um, great uh, anecdotes in your book, Jed, and I can't remember the woman's name who had the um, horse riding accident oh, where you, you illustrate. Yeah, was her name Marin? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so are these, um, so it sounds like they're sort of innate in us and we do them naturally to a degree, uh, but they are somewhat teachable or that, you know, how do we create nudges or, you know, how can we yeah. facilitate this process? Yeah. Uh, these 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 behaviors are not really innate. I think the capacity for them is innate, but right. it takes us a you know, it takes us it's part of our natural development as human beings. And we develop these capacities as we go through childhood and adolescence. And usually around adulthood we've kind of got these this set of like skills. And our research has shown that most people do have at least a moderate level of skill doing these things, which I was very relieved to see because we've been I've been arguing that resilience People who reach that resilient outcome do it this way, and now the research has shown that in fact most people, most people are resilient. Most people also have these these skills, whether they know it or not. Part of what I, the reason I wrote the book was to just simply kind of let make it be known to people that this is seems to be the way we do it. Now, so um, I think there there there's some research on all these things that are kind of teachable, and I'm now. Um, developing a training for this, for the, the, the mindset and the sequence. And I'm working with some. Now, this is not something I've done before. I'm a researcher, not right. a trainer, right? Yeah. So I'm yeah. collaborating with some very talented people to help me do this because I want to do it correctly. So I'm collaborating with people who do these kind of trainings and I'm collaborating with people who know how to evaluate these kind of trainings so we can make sure we get it right. But, you know, I, I think even in the, the book, Part of the point of the book was just to simply convey the knowledge. And I think getting a kind of firmer understanding of these things will really help people. Now, to, to help that along, I think this is part of your question. Um, one way we can nudge ourselves along and remind ourselves is through what's called self-talk. And self-talk is a really great tool. It's used in sports. It's used sometimes in business. And it's really just talking to ourselves. There's two kinds of self-talk that, that are uh, uh, useful here. One is a kind of a monologue where we just say to ourselves, you know, um, 
this is what you can do. So you can you can even put your name in it, your first name in it, because that actually has been shown to be more effective because we get a little bit of distance. So you might say, or I might say, I'll use my own self as an example, I might say, George, you can do this. You know, it's going to be okay, George, you can do it, you know, that kind of thing. You know, you, you know, you have the tools, George, you can do it. Um, you know, that, that kind of thing. And I, I, I have a chart of these in the book of how to uh, self-talk for each of the different pieces. And then for the flexibility sequence, it's more of a dialogue where we ask ourselves questions. Like, mm-hmm. What's happening here? What's bothering me? Um, and then that's for the, the initial assessment, the context part. And the second part is what am I, so, you know, what do I need to do? Then it becomes what am I able to do? And then the third part, we have questions like, is this working? You know, do I need to do something different? And all of these things are simple, routine questions that the research has shown this kind of thing works. And, you know, I have a bit of a chart, you know, elaborating how, uh, you know, these examples and people can make up their own self-talk. But I think it's extremely useful. Yeah, great. So, yeah, that was, you've answered part of my um, closing questions around the future. So I'm really thrilled to hear that you're looking at sort of translating this into a program. Um, On the flip side, research-wise in the future, what would you like to see unfold or um, explore to see, yeah, where resilience can can take us? Yeah, that's a great question. So what I'm thinking now research-wise, and I think this will take me a long time, Maybe, you know, another 20 years, I don't know how long this will take me, probably not that long, but I really want to dig deeper into what resilience and flexibility are. And so I think that will take a new kind of evidence, a new kind of research. And I, I, I think it will take much more um, uh, data intensive research, you know, like right now, the, the possibility, and I'm collaborating with some people that already do this, the possibility is already there with our mobile phones and our computers, you know, mm. you hear a lot in the press about, or there's a lot of concern about, about how people are mining our data for whatever, for, for profit. But there are people who are out there trying to also work out how to mine those data for health, to promote our health and to let for us to use it right so um, mobile phones are a fantastic source of data and just where people are what they were doing um, you know when how they slept all those things and we can add some questions to it with people's permission of course for the specific purpose not of selling it but of of developing ways for our own personal better mental health and those data you know we're talking thousands you know, many tens of thousands of data points. And it's very hard to really do that properly. So here we need new kinds of machine learning. You know, so as I mentioned, I'm collaborating with people that that have a much better grasp on machine learning and these other technologies than I do. And I don't know exactly yet how we'll do it. Like how we'll actually, what would be the best way to record data and what would be the best way to utilize those data? Because it's a tricky question. But I, this is where I'm going with it, and I'm, I, I, you know, I have time. You know, it's I'm a researcher, so you know, researchers yeah. are driven by questions, and this is the question I have now, uh, and I really want to, you know, get into the meat of this question. Brilliant. All right, so just to wrap up, I want to finish off just underscoring the the importance of the book. So, um, yeah, tell me how. How did you find writing the, the the process of the writing the book? It was as I said, I think there's some great anecdotes there, and some personal friends you've developed some relationships with, um, coupled with the 
the research and the the sequence and the mindset. What's the the response been like around the book? Because as I said, it could be a little bit seen as controversial. The fact you're um, suggesting we're more resilient than we think. Uh, well, that's the, the controversy is nothing new in, in my um, my my intellectual life. I mean, I've been doing this for, as, as you mentioned in the introduction, almost 30 years now. Initially, when we began to do this work, it was more or less ignored. But then we just kept mm. publishing, and we published in top, you know, as scholarly journals. So eventually, the, the data piled up. And I've had a very um, satisfying career in recent years because I've been given, you know, lifetime achievement awards and things for this work, you know, within the science-oriented community. I think it's a little bit less so, maybe maybe that's an understatement in the clinical community, where a lot of people will still tell me, you know, I don't, I don't care how much research you've done, you're just wrong about this, right? And I think that's, that's um, you know, going to still take more time. But the worrisome part for me is the general public, right? Because I think there's so much investment right now in in not believing in this, right? And in, in, mm. you know, a lot of people interested in resilience, but there's a there are lots and lots of people. I think, and I even underestimated this, who are very invested in the idea of trauma and hidden trauma, you know. And that's a very popular idea. So I think I think my my book counter that I don't think I don't have any illusions that it's going to wipe away all these these you know I <laughs> yeah. think illusions in, in any you know in any easy way but you know um, I just hope that it sticks around a while you know and I, I tend to write books that stick around a while you know because the ideas take a, a long time to catch on but yeah. I hope yeah. it's influential you know I, I, I do things like you know talking with on podcasts like your podcast and you know, I give a lot of lectures all over the world, and you know, I, I'm hoping that you know there'll be a shift, you know, in 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 the way, in the public's openness to 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 actually looking at the research. And you know, I've had people tell me, well, your idea or your theory, and I generally counter by saying, is that really a theory as much as it is? It's a very data. If it is a theory, it's a very data-driven theory, right? This is we're talking mountains of evidence here so you know i just do the best i can and we'll see where it goes you know yeah well you've done a brilliant job i encourage everybody to get a copy of um the end of trauma beautifully written as well it's um as i said for a researcher you're a very good author as well so um congratulations and we'll put the links to the book any other resources you wanted to mention or promote um i i could probably put a link to my lab on the on the on your website that has um uh, all the more scholarly articles, um, you know, yep. if anybody's interested in those, they can find them. These Most of them are downloadable there. Okay, brilliant. Um, George, thank you so much for your time. I, I loved, as I said, reading your book. To me, it gives hope that, you know, we're actually far more resilient and it's, you know, the it's the um, rule rather than the exception that we are resilient. So, yeah, hopefully we can spread the word. Great, Nathan. Very nice to talk with you. I really enjoyed the discussion. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.